and welcome to the Destinate NZ Show. I'm Michelle Caldwell, one half of the hosting team, and I'm here today with three more incredible Tourism Awards finalists. Yes, you heard that right. Chambers is not here today. Well, just for this intro, actually, but she does join us for the three interviews coming up. And we've got three more amazing finalists. The final Visitor Experience Award finalist, the final Tourism Industry Champion finalist, and a Māori Tourism Award double finalist who you met for the first time last week. So firstly, thank you listeners for joining us today and listening in to what is part nine of the Tourism Awards special. So we're coming to the end of the Tourism Awards special. Sadly, we've only got a few more award finalists to interview, so we think it'll probably be the next two weeks and then we'll revert back to our normal show. But before we get going, we've got a couple of winners to announce today. We gave you the opportunity to win a family pass for the Wellington Zoo or the Waitangi Treaty Grounds last week. This one was super easy. You just needed to tell us which one you wanted to win. And they were both popular. So I'm going to do this on my own today because obviously Chambers isn't here. And I've got my winners. We'll start with the Wellington Zoo. And I'm just going to pick one out of here. Oops. Here we go. And the winner is Olivia Fairhurst. So Olivia, we will get in touch with you. Congratulations, you have won a family pass to the zoo. And now we'll get on to our Waitangi Treaty Grounds winners. Oops, here we go. This one is an Instagram one. I don't know her real name, but oh, I think it's a he, her. Sorry if it's not. This little like of mine. So we will be in touch with you. Congratulations. You are heading off with your family to the Waitangi Treaty Grounds. So as I mentioned, we are nearing the end of the Tourism Awards special episodes and I thought we could mix things up a little bit. So what we've done is we've had a couple of chats and a bit of feedback from some of you, our listeners out there, and we want to give you the opportunity to influence the show a little bit. So if you've been listening to our podcast thinking that you or somebody you know in tourism has a great story to tell, let us know. We would love to hear from you. So we obviously already have a list of people we want to interview on the Destinate NZ show, but we also want to hear from you because obviously we don't do this for ourselves. We do this to share these amazing stories with you every single week as well. So I've set up a little get in touch contact form on our podcast page so if you go to destinatenz.com click on podcast at the top and you'll see the get in touch ask us page there the contact form and you'll be able to fill that out and just let us know if you or somebody you know should be on the show because we keep in touch with a lot of people we keep our eye on a lot of the news but we simply just can't keep on top of everything that's happening in the industry so we want you to help us out if that's okay and another suggestion that's come in from one of our regular listeners given we've focused a lot on marketing And that's because that's our background. We want to answer your marketing questions. So what's challenging you in your business? 
What would you like help with? And over the next few weeks, we'll try and cover off a different question each week to help you achieve results in your business. This is basically free marketing consultancy. So guys, what are you waiting for? Jump on to DestinateNZ.com, click the podcast button and fill in the form and send us your questions. Now, the curlier the better. We love a challenge and not to say that we know everything, but it will certainly get us thinking about how we can help you and what we recommend from our many years in the industry and the experience that we have. So yeah, get in touch with us and we'll start that once we finish these Tourism Awards specials. Okay, so shall we get into the show? I think that's a good idea. As I mentioned, we have three amazing finalists today. First up, we're joined by Bruce Thomason, the co-founder and managing director of Redwoods Tree Walk in Rotorua. Bruce was born in Rotorua in 1969. Oh, he's given us his age there and has lived there for most of his life with a few years living offshore, opening luge attractions in Canada and Singapore. He has been based back in Rotorua since 2007 and lives with his wife, Kelly. They have five children who have left the nest, apart from the university holidays. Bruce has over 35 years experience in the tourism industry, starting in hotels before moving to tourism attractions. Now the Redwoods Tree Walk in Rotorua is a must do. The Tree Walk is a suspended 40 minute ecological walk and provides a unique bird's eye perspective of the forest, capturing its picturesque beauty and ambience. By night, the tree walk transforms with illuminated lanterns and infinite color lighting. Daytime for nature and nighttime for magic. They are finalists in the NZME Visitor Experience Award. And then after that, we welcome Bridget Legnavsky from Real NZ, formerly Wayfair, formerly Real Journeys. Are you keeping up with me here? So Bridget has grown up in the ski industry and has worked her way up through ski instructing to training, customer service, and then GM at Cadrona, and more recently Treble Cone when they acquired that, before being recently appointed Chief Experience Officer at Real NZ. Skilled in management, strategic planning, event management and business development and is a strong operations professional with a Master of Business Administration from the Otago University. Bridget is a finalist in the Marsh Tourism Industry Champion Award and her passion for enabling people around her to become the best version of themselves is evident in this chat and I have no doubt that you'll love listening in. And then finally, we welcome back Tuck Mutu from MDA Group, again in Rotorua. So we first met Tuck last week when we interviewed him for the Community Engagement Award. Well, this week we're chatting about the Māori Tourism Awards that they are also finalists in. Tuck has given us two full suspension, full day bike hires to give away. So listen out for this one and how you can enter later on in the show. Well, listeners, it's another cracking show, if I do say so myself. So we'll get into it now and we will see you all same channel next Wednesday from 7 a.m. Kakite. So it's been a while since we chatted with our Visitor Experience Award finalists, but we are thrilled to now welcome our final finalist in this category, Bruce Thomason from Redwoods Tree Walk in Rotorua. Kia ora, Bruce, and welcome to the show. Kia ora, thanks, uh, thanks for making this happen. 
Kia ora, Bruce, and nice to see you. Now, can you tell our listeners, those that haven't been to Redwoods Tree Walk, a little bit about what makes your visitor experience so special? I think for us, it's about nature. For our key phrases, daytime for nature, nighttime for magic. So we're so blessed that five minutes from downtown Rotorua, we have this uh, beautiful forest that's over 120 years old. And it's the Redwoods are part of a, a, a forestry set up in the late 1800s when the government recognised that they can't continue chopping down our native forestry. And they planted 5,000 acres of test trees, of which 36 hectares are Redwoods. Obviously, we're in, within part of that. Mm-hmm. And so these trees are protected. They were planted over 120 years ago. And they grow in our climate or in New Zealand's climate and obviously enjoy the Rotorua climate at 10 times the growth rate is what they do in San Francisco. So you're just in this beautiful natural environment, five minutes from probably where you're staying the night in Rotorua. And, you know, it's a really sacred and special place for locals too. So in terms of mm. taking the family for a walk, taking your dogs, uh, going for a mountain bike ride, And then, of course, now tree walk option is uh, let's get you up elevated. So um, you start the walk at six metres of of height. And then on parts of it, there's an optional loop that gets you up to 20 metres. So you're up there with the birds. You're looking down onto the canopy of the silver ferns and the undergrowth. So just a really special experience. And, of course, we have that partnership with David Truebridge and a design sustainability champion. And we've just got this magical lantern experience at nighttime. So yeah, we just feel lucky to be in a place that we have the chance to showcase this beautiful spot. Yeah, absolutely. I love that Redwoods. I've walked there quite a few times. So Bruce, what does the Tiaki promise mean in your business and how do you promote that to your customers? For us, it's about we're guardians of, of a moment of time. So, I mean, these trees have been growing for 120 years. We're looking after it at this moment. And of course, I won't be here maybe in 50 years. Who knows? <laughs> um, and for our team, it's a, it's a special place. We want to showcase that. We want it here for future generations. These trees really put it into perspective that redwoods are the longest living tree in the world and they are the biggest trees in the world. So at 120 years young, they are only babies in the redwood world. And what highlights it quite nicely is that we've got a a showcase piece um, of redwood from San Francisco that's over 2,100 years old. So that was chopped down, unfortunately, in San Francisco in 1952. And we've got a piece of that on display. So it it, it stands at, you know, over two and a half metres in diameter. And that's from 30 metres up in the tree. Oh, wow. So, and we, I mean, we've got that dated. So that's that was a seedling pre-BC. And we've got that timeline that shows the world's experiences that's happened in this tree's lifetime. And it really brings that into perspective, that Tiaki promise that, look, we're, only, we're not even one, we're a handful of growth rings on these trees that you're here. And so mm. it just really brings that, to just look after what we've got. I think after this COVID year that we've had, nature and just getting back to simple and enjoying the simple things of life is a theme and is a thread that I think the world is is more attuned to. Mm. Yeah, that's certainly true. And I must admit, I think the Redwoods Tree Walk was one of the first 
activities I did after lockdown last year. We came across to Rotorua for a weekend and came and visited you guys. And yeah, I've got a photo standing beside that big bit of wood and and some yeah stunning the photos. Giant. I think yes, mm. the giant. And I think one of the things that I loved about your story is you've got these walking platforms that are connected in the treetops, but the special technology and and methods that you've used to protect the trees while you're in the trees was really quite special. Absolutely. It's, I mean, obviously these trees are growing and they're growing Mm. at at a diameter of one to two centimetres per annum. So our whole uh, mechanism is about allowing that tree to continue to grow, not hindering it. And obviously uh, we want this tree to grow to be a thousand years old. Yeah. And so our, there's no bolts or screws into the trees. Everything is slung and readjusted constantly to allow for the growth of these trees. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's pretty amazing. So when it comes to looking at what your customers say, what part do customer insights play in developing and, and enhancing and improving your customer experience? Look, it's, it's a major part. So not only customer feedback is staff feedback. So for us, it's about opportunities for improvement or we run sort of like a lean management. So we've got six mm-hmm. pillars of management and one of the core threads of that is our opportunity for improvement. And that's about gaining the feedback from our frontline, our team. And that could be frustrations that they have with just work. It could be ideas that they see in terms of feedback they have. And in our short time of being open, we've had 260 staff offies or opportunities for improvement presented. Wow. They're all tracked. They've got details and, and we have a priority matrix so that the team members are aware of where we're at with that. So a priority one for us is a low cost and high benefit idea and mm-hmm. goes through to a priority four, which is a hard to implement and a high cost. So obviously that's a priority four and we get to it when we can. And we have the same principle for, for guest feedback. So we've had in, we've had 62 recorded pieces of guest feedback that we've actioned. Mm-hmm. And one that I like talking about, when we first opened, you had to have toddlers had to walk the tree walk because we can't have babies and young children held higher than the handrail. Right. Yep. So some from a customer feedback or a complaint, which was she wanted to bring her toddler through and couldn't do it through to it. We worked with that and have designed and got our own tailor-made push chairs uh, that can take toddlers and babies through the tree walk because they have to be oh, narrow. Wow. Obviously the yeah. tree platforms are narrow. Yep. And so we've designed and tailor-made using Kiwi companies, Melrose out of Christchurch and Jessica, actually. So Jessica was the lady who came through and wanted to bring her babies through. And we've worked with Jessica and Melrose and and have these great toddler and baby push chairs, which are used 10, 20 times a day. Mm, So that's that's one really specific piece of customer feedback that we've acted on. It wasn't cheap. I mean, these push chairs are like three to four thousand dollars each, but they do the job. Our customer satisfaction's gone up, and of course, we've got the whole family can come, but Mm. someone having to stay on the ground while the others can go around. So it's just worked beautifully, and that's just the. An example of how serious we take staff and guest feedback that how can we improve? So for us, it's absolutely about a continuous improvement culture. And if you know it's a bit of a joke in the team that if they go away for a fortnight, they come back and it's not how many numerous changes have happened in between. <laughs> 
That's awesome. And what's um, the biggest challenge that you face in delivering a world-class visitor experience every day? For us, that's about why in terms of having our team empowered. So first of all, it's about making sure that we as directors or as shareholders of the business, we've got a philosophy of we want to be world-class, we want to be design-led and New Zealand admired. So everything we do is around that, about making our business easier, better and safer. So our commitment is making sure that we do things the best we can. We're not taking shortcuts and use you know, methods and design that Kiwis can be proud of and that we know if Kiwis are proud of it, of course it's world-class and of course the domestic market will want to come and see it. Yeah. Um, hence, hence working with David Truebridge and not, and not choosing an Alibaba equivalent that we take it seriously to do the best we can and then of course it's our people and our team are mandated and given that authority and and expectation that they deliver what the guest needs and those stories and the manaki that our visitors deserve. Hmm, Cool and what other businesses have you looked to either domestically or internationally to benchmark yourself against or be inspired by? Look, along, obviously I've been, not telling my age here, but I've been in the industry a number of years, probably. <laughs> and a, a big driver for me, especially when I was with Skyline, so I was with Skyline 20 years, hotels prior to that, destination marketing prior to that. Disneyland has always been one that I've put up as the pinnacle of that magical feeling and and not taking shortcuts and just being my vision of what Disneyland is and how it should be perceived. And what they do is sort of what I've strived to do on a scale that's relevant at a business Mm. that's paid for for skyline size. And then also been able to bring that through to a business like Tree Walk on what is that magic and how do you integrate it so that it's not obvious what you're doing or how it's happened that you've got this how did they do this and of course we've got the magic of 120 year old trees that grow 10 times as fast as they do in san francisco so there's that Mm. also so we're just in this beautiful amphitheater and we just make sure that we complement that That's amazing. What do you think visitors and guests look for when they choose a tourism experience and that you've taken away and gone, that's what we're going to use as one of our principles? I'm trying to define that question. That's a hard one. Look, it it all comes down to we want our customers or our visitors leaving saying that's a five out of five or a 10 out of 10 experience. Mm -hmm. Anything less than that for us is not acceptable we haven't achieved our goal so mm-hmm. everything we do right down through to your searching for us online or our ticketing experience our greeting the entrance way for example when we first opened the business we couldn't quite have our dream of our we've got this fantastic spiral entrance way that David Truebridge designed now he designed that one year prior to us even opening but we couldn't get architects and engineers to agree on how that is built and, and to be signed off on. So we, when we first opened for our first year, it was a staircase, not a cheap one. It was just still a $75,000 staircase to get to the top. And then, of course, one year later, we pull that out and we put the Truebridge spiral in at multiples the cost of that staircase. And we did that because it, you get a sense of arrival. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. It complements it. It's a piece of art. And mm-hmm. it's a beautiful way to ascend to the start of the tree walk. And of course, we continue to do that every year. We don't stop innovating and developing our product. So first of all, we opened without nightlights. Then it was nightlights. Then it was the spiral entranceway. 
then it's our high walk, then it was the see-through floor platform at 20 meters, then our 3D video animation. The list goes on. Then, of course, in December, you know, two months before COVID hit, we launched the Redwoods Altitude product. So the Redwoods Altitude product was from guest feedback saying the only way to improve tree walk is to go higher. So to go higher meant we had to lessen the weight of the build. To lessen the weight of the build meant the safety had to go into a harness and, mm -hmm. a, and a continuous belay line or safety line that you walk around on these Indiana Jones bridges that we've made. So that our Redwoods Altitude product is at minimum 25 metres, zip lines, jungle jungle swing bridges and not an obstacle course as such but if you imagine for, for our dream on that one was what would Indiana Jones in the forest look like <laughs> and jungle bridges and that's what we've tried to replicate so all of our bridges on altitude are themed and that was from guest feedback on saying how would you improve tree walk and the resounding feedback was go higher mm, wow wow and um, what's next yeah. <laughs> well, funnily enough, we are going to be launching something this uh, summer, true to form. I always try to yep. launch something before summer. Nice. And, and we've worked with David Truebridge again, and we're, we're creating one of his largest lanterns, and you will be able to walk into it. So it's on the tree walk. It's nine metres in height. Wow. And you'll be walking into the lantern. So everyone, ev everybody wants to go in, in, inside a, a tree hut, let's call it. But yep. this is a true bridge lantern. So not only is it an experience during the day, because you'll be able to walk into this, that at nighttime you'll be walking into one of David's largest designs. Wow. Brilliant. That sounds like fun. And it's just another reason to keep people coming back again and again, isn't it, when you're doing that? continuous innovation and improvement it is look just under 15 percent of our visitors are repeat and obviously um that's and for our type of product that's for a luge product repeat visitation is high because you want to beat somebody next week or next holidays yeah so for a tree walk experience it is about innovation and continue to give you a new reason to come back this summer so they loved mm -hmm. last summer and now we've got one or two extra things and they want to come back and, and have that magic again. So that's been the success, successful source to date and we're continuing with it. Awesome. That's awesome. And why did you enter the Tourism Awards? For us, it's about benchmarking the business and just making sure we are reviewing, not there sitting back thinking, oh, we're great. <laughs> and we've got everything sorted and under control. What it does make you do is go through everything you do, not just P&Ls and not just one aspect of your business. It's, it's an all-encompassing helicopter review of your business annually, mm -hmm. which is why TreeWalk does enter awards because it makes us do the helicopter view of the business and you get really good results just by the process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. Well, Bruce, that wraps up all of our questions for today. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to have a chat. And obviously, I'm very familiar with your product, but looking forward to coming back to experience your new summer experience over there. And we wish you all the best on the awards night now that we're doing this virtually instead of in person, which is a bit of a shame. But Getting some practice now on how that's going to work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although they will be using the visuals, I'm sure we just use the audio. So you might have to do your hair and makeup that night. <laughs> better, better than I have. Yeah. <laughs> oh, perfect. Well, thank you very much. And we'll talk to you soon. Right. Thank you, ladies. Day.
We're staying in my hometown of Wanaka today and we welcome our final tourism industry champion to the show, Bridget Legnavsky. Kia ora, Bridget. Kia ora, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. How are you? Good. Beautiful sunny day in Wanaka today, so I'm really happy. Lovely. Well, kia ora, Bridget. It's great to have you on the show. You're currently the Chief Experience Officer at Real New Zealand, formerly Wayfair. Are you able to share with our listeners a little bit about your career to date, how you got started and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, sure. How long do you want me to talk for? (laughs) As long as you want. (laughs) No, I'll go quickly. I grew up as a skier. I um, love skiing. I was a competitive skier, a kind of competitive skier compared to what's going on these days. And ended up going to university, doing a phys-ed degree, becoming a ski instructor, moving to Wanaka full-time in 1993 where I taught skiing and kind of moved quite fast through the ski instructing industry and became a trainer. Obviously, I was competing alongside it. And then I did back-to-back seasons between starting in Japan, then I went to America, and then later Europe and spent a lot of about 20, 15 to 20 years doing that back-to-back seasons. Mm-hmm. And I worked as a trainer for ski instructors for a long time, spent a lot of time on, on a thing called the New Zealand Demonstration Team, where we go out and sort of talk about New Zealand technique all around the world, and we ski together and train together. And during that time, I sort of slowly moved through um, training directors, running training programs, starting a lot of high performance stuff, the high performance centers and polytech training systems and things like that. So kind of moved through in that space. So very much educational and sort of leading and, and dealing with people in their learning environment. So that's kind of my background. Then um, went on to run the ski and snowboard school and then eventually um, snow sports all together at Cadrona, which has included running events, big events, running the high performance centre and running the ski and snowboard school. And the events are interesting because when I say events, it sounds really simple, but we were running World Cups each week. So they were big events. Wow. <laughs> so, so a bit, bit big team and a lot of complexity and a lot of really highly passionate and motivated people on my team. So they probably stretched me in terms of my leadership and the way that I um, learn how to lead people pretty hard and fast, if that makes sense. Yeah. I um, actually left to have babies, and that was about 16 years ago, and thought I'd start some other stuff, thought I'd get a real job, as my mother kept saying it, and then <laughs> somehow got lured back to become what was called, at that time, the customer services manager. So that was to not only look after everything to do with the sport, um, but took on things like food and beverage and more across the resort and the customer services side. So did that. That was a really integral time in my leadership because when I did that, we were at a funny time and there was just before Real Journeys bought Cadrona. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine as a business is on the market, things aren't so good and it's a bit wobbly for things. So we did a huge amount of work and probably this is a piece where I really anchored who I was around um, values. We, we didn't have much in terms of investment and where we were going, but we knew we had each other. So it was the way we pulled together at that point and defined how we wanted to make our people feel, which is define who Cadrona is today. And then, and then that was really strong, got that going, set up people in performance departments and across the board, got the consistency. Actually did a degree with capable New Zealand at this point, a postgraduate in business excellence, as Mm -hmm. I went through that process, which was really cool. Real Journeys came along, Richard Lauder, who was a CEO at the time, took a look at what was doing and immediately, which was awesome, immediately promoted me to GM. That was in Mm -hmm. 2013. So I've been GM of Cadrona and TC since, well, Cadrona since then, and obviously TC as we acquired it in the last couple of years, up until August this year. And in August this year, post a new CEO, Stephen 
England Hall, who came out of Tourism New Zealand, there was a, a completely new realignment where we kind of cracked ski and pushed it across the whole business, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So took my role out of being more a GM role to being a chief of experience officer for the whole of then Re- now Real NZ. So kind of went through that process, which has been kind of the next stage of change. So that's where I am today. Yeah. Wow. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Awesome story, Bridget. Yeah, this, it is kind of a cool story. I don't think it is because it's mine. Everyone thinks their own story is a bit boring, but actually it's it's pretty cool. I haven't jumped around much, but I've had a lot of progression. Mm. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And yeah. what training and professional development have you undertaken? You've mentioned a few parts just then briefly with your postgraduate, but what training and professional development have been key that you've undertaken throughout your career? Yeah, so, I mean, I started by leaving school and going to phys ed school and did a PE degree. Then, of course, a lot of work. I wrote quite a lot of manuals. So I did a lot of writing of technical manuals and teaching systems and things like that. Then when I went into the role of services manager, I did the postgraduate work with Otago Polytech, which was awesome. But that started me as a real adult, or I call it adult, but I'll call it older learner. So going (laughs) back to school and learning how to learn again. And then learning became really integral in who I am. And when I got the GM role, Richard Lauder is a real academic and mm-hmm. real academic, and he really strongly recommended that we keep learning. So I actually went back to university this time and did an MBA, and it took me three or four years of every evening of my life, but I can't even remember it happening. It was just so awesome. It was so awesome. I did an MBA through Otago University. Every time I did a paper, I got to the end of it, oh my goodness, how did I not know that? But I think that's quite normal in the MBA process. So um, that was awesome doing that. And what was cool about it is so many of the papers that I did and my cohort was amazing. We could do as projects and assignments on Cardona. So our sustainability plan came out of it. Things like a marketing plan into China came out of it. Things actually, a whole Soho master plan was my final project with um, my project management was a part, the, the final part of my project was project management piece. And I actually built the whole master plan of Soho that we're going wow. to implement now. So it was really cool doing a higher level of education, but being able to apply it directly to what you were doing in your business. And it was, yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, that sounds really cool. It's great when you can, I remember going to university straight out of school and it was really hard at that time to think about what you're learning and how that would relate to the real world. So I think there's something in that going back as an adult learner and you've had that work experience. Hmm. Well, I was pretty rubbish at physique school because all I wanted to do was just pass and make sure I didn't have any labs on a Friday afternoon so I could get up skiing. (laughs) And you really don't care that much. Well, you kind of do. Well, I didn't. And I was so focused on my skiing at that point, it was really hard. But going back and actually applying it to a real life situation, it was actually really easy to do really well because you were you were way more passionate about it because you were actually seeing it happen. And that yeah, was cool. Gonna, yeah, yeah, that's cool. really cool. So what would you describe as your biggest achievements and how have they impacted on the business that you've been working in? My biggest achievement has been building the values at Cadrona. Right. Yeah. And that's been instrumental because our values aren't just words they're full layers of content that I could probably talk about for days and days and days but essentially those values have shaped my philosophy as a human being and a whole lot of people around me which I'm really really proud of because Mm. it's not like it's specific to me and it's dictatorial or anything like that it's around how to become the best human being you can possibly be 
Yeah. And when you do that and you build that into something that you can actually articulate, that's incredibly powerful as a leader. And those values have now just been um, evolved, obviously, but I've just run them out through a process and taken them from ski, built in what was existing in the rest of the business and growing them into real NZ. And I'm really proud of being able to do that. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. yeah. It's really exciting. It's really exciting. And But it is just about being able to talk about what it's like to be a really good person. I mean, obviously you're innovating all the time and you're developing, but you, do you have any particular successful innovations or initiatives that can be attributed to your personal involvement with developing and growing the businesses? I mean, the easy ones are the growth ones. Those are the kind of easy ones and the obviously ones. How do we manage capacity? Where are our constraints? Where do we have to put our money in to invest? And that's all easy when you've got money coming in. Mm-hmm. But I think probably my... The biggest success is how we handled COVID last year, because when that first happened, the initial thing that happened was we weren't going to be able to open. Hmm. We were considered as a single venue. So learning how to really, really, truly collaborate with industry was quite unbelievable. And working together with the other ski resorts in the country to come up with our own set of rules to present and proactively present to government to say, this is what we're going to do, was fairly amazing and what I've really loved about COVID can people say that what I've really loved not about many COVID do not many the platform that that created for us because all of a sudden we realized we had a voice and we had a capability to create something bigger so in behind that all of a sudden I, I don't know if you guys noticed it but last year everyone was looking at the ski industry because we were the mm. first open out of lockdown the first time around and all of a sudden we became influential and that was cool. And you put yourself in an influential position and go, oh, what else can I do? So mm-hmm. suddenly all the things that we were kind of hiding, like the fact that we've taken out all re- reusable plastics and taken away all takeaway cups and removed PE plastic and decided to go zero landfill onto the resorts. Suddenly we could talk about that and everyone was listening. And so mm-hmm. something that I'm super proud of is that you can't buy take your well, you can, but only in one or two places, you can't buy takeaway cups in Wanaka. Mm. And that has come out of the work that we did and the influence that we didn't even realise we had. And for a while, we were like, oh, we can't be greenwashing, we can't be greenwashing because it's really bad. But what was worse was greenwashing and not telling people what we're doing because what we were really trying to show people is what can we actually do to, to change the dial in terms of climate change? So... That's been really cool. And then that's just stemming on to different things. And the next thing is building our own carbon calculation tool with the ski industry to get that right. And now I move into a company that's just reversed everything about its thinking to become mm-hmm. a conservation business yeah. enabled by tourism. And I'm just going, how did that happen? And that's awesome. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, no, it is very right. cool. And I must admit, Bridget, last year through the lockdowns, I used to hang on um, to all of the videos that you guys were putting out from Cadrona. So obviously <laughs> you were leading the way and, and had a really clear plan through that. And it was great yeah. to see because it was a bit of a shining light at the end of a tunnel that we didn't really know when was going to end at the time. Yeah, a few stars aligned for me on that one because I was in Europe when COVID hit. In fact, I was being followed around Europe by COVID. My husband and son spend their seasons overseas and I usually go and meet them. My son's a good skier, which he should be because he's had every opportunity in the world, but we won't go there. Um, (laughs) Good job he's taken them. Yeah, but you know, I was getting followed around and I got back to Larks, which was our base, and I ski areas were starting to close down. I'm like, how can the government close down a ski area? And I was like going... Damn, and this was early February. 
So I grabbed my daughter who was with me and we hightailed at home, but we came back through Asia and I got back to Japan and going into Narita and everything was in lockdown and you couldn't even use Koru lounges. I'm like, well, I was in, I was in a bit of shock. <laughs> but by the time I'd had all those 48 hours or whatever sitting on an airplane, I got back on the ground and I came back to work and I called everyone in and said, listen, this is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone looked at me like I had two heads. They thought I was completely mad, but I said, now, this is coming and we might be closed down, so we need to make a plan. So we built up, I think, something like 13 scenarios and 13 P&Ls based on what we thought might happen and just planned it all out bit by bit by bit. It was amazing. And so once the government came up with the levels, the reason we were able to go and communicate straight away was we already had the plan. Mm, so we yeah. just plucked out how the levels aligned to our scenarios and boom for it was right there. And it was like we could easily go out and communicate with people going, this is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't think I've ever done so much scenario planning as we did in those few months. <laughs> it was a little bit crazy. Yeah. <laughs> or even still now. Yeah, True. yeah. Still, still now, but now it's just like you're just. I'm probably a little bit more relaxed about it now because you just have to do what you do each day, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're yeah. sort of used to not having control and just kind of going, okay, we're closed tomorrow. You know, we couldn't have handled that a year ago. No, we couldn't have handled. We we wouldn't have known how to handle our staff or anything by just being closed overnight like we were in August this year. Yeah, mm. and and in a way, it was a bit of a blessing when you think back for the ski industry that it did happen in March and not in August. Because well, yeah, I this think year it we did it happen give... in August, and yeah. way worse, way yeah. worse for us this year than last year. I know. I was there on my <laughs> way. Oh, <no>. <laughs> one one <laughs> day skiing, and then we went into lockdown. <laughs> and we had about a meter of snow the night before. Can you imagine it? We were like crying. I know. Oh, I was looking from my home, and Monica just like, "Are you joking? One 24 hours, Jacinda. That's all it was going to be. Just have that day. That's a powder day. <laughs> I know. Everybody had said to us on the Tuesday when we arrived, "You've nailed it. You've timed it so perfectly. This is the best snow we've had." And we had a day at Coronet Peak, and on Honestly, when we said, when they told us we were going into lockdown for three days, I wanted to stay because I said, oh, we'll be back up skiing on Saturday. It's no problem. Yeah. Auckland will stay locked down. The rest of us will be back out. But no, we, we no, did no. get out and get home no. safely, which was probably no. a good thing. Otherwise, yeah. we would have spent quite yeah. a bit of time there. <laughs> anyway, um, so Bridget, what can you tell us how you foster the next generation of tourism leaders coming through your business or even in the wider industry that you interact with? I think it's about really about enabling people to get things done like trust is huge you know mm -hmm. trying to guide them with how to think and this is where I come back to the values I kind of keep pulling on the values because they're so instrumental to me guiding them with um how to think for themselves like I love it when I have conversations with people and they actually are thinking about what that means rather than regurgitating what other people think so training people how to think for themselves define their own philosophy is really really important mm -hmm. and then giving them the freedom to try things and make mistakes and you know I think a really big thing for us is always it's all about people and I mean I don't want to go on about that because we all know that but it's all about how we want our people to feel so you just mm. keep questioning yourself on that whether, whether it comes to how you're dealing with your workforce and your team whether it's how you're dealing with your people but I think that's really important. I think there's a huge amount that leaders need to understand and maybe it's my focus now, but I, 
I think this is just really real is around what conservation really means. You know, it's it's more important to look after our nature and, and our environment, but also to look after the things that we have, like our buildings, like basics and looking after our buildings and our build infrastructure, really seriously looking after our culture, thinking deeply about, you know, what it, what is a New Zealand culture and how do we truly understand and with really, really good intent, integrate Te Ao Māori throughout all of our businesses because it is so important as that story of who New Zealanders are. Mm-hmm. And then all, also just thinking about our, our role in looking after people, their health, safety, and nowadays, even more than ever, well-being. And if mm-hmm. we understand that, then the rest of it will just happen. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so if you were to give the young leaders that are coming through the industry your top tips, what would they be? Listen fiercely. (laughs) Listen and listen and listen. Because if you don't listen, you won't learn. And you have to be learned. You have to be open. You have Mm -hmm. to be open to different ideas and never, ever poo-hoo anyone. Put yourself in other people's shoes. Take responsibility of everything Mm -hmm. that happens. Take ownership of everything you do and learn from it and realize how you can do it better next time because you have to be. And then I guess that next thing is you're constantly trying to improve and evolve because out of that radiates the best version of yourself. And I'll come back Mm -hmm. to that. And what we're looking for is innovation and creativity, but that will only happen if you kind of come up through listening, being open and continuing to learn. Yeah. Great advice. Awesome. Oh, there's probably a lot more, but you asked me for a street. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get you back on for a longer episode later. Yeah. <laughs> well, Bridget, that wraps up our questions for today. So thank you so much for joining us. And thanks for being one of our tourism industry champions in a year that's been a pretty um, challenging year for a lot of the industry, to say the least. But we feel incredibly privileged to be able to share your story with our listeners. And we wish you all the very best at the virtual tourism awards <laughs> <laughs> later this month. Thanks so much. Oh, great. Back Kia, Kia ora. So we now head back to Oradora to chat to Tark Mutu from MDA Group, who are finalists in the Māori Tourism Award category. Welcome back to the show, Tark. Hi, Kara Kata Katoa. Kia ora, Tark. Now, this award recognises a commercial tourism business that's delivering an authentic Māori tourism visitor experience or product. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing and why you should win this award. Gosh, I don't (laughs) know if I should win this award, but here's what we do. So I've talked about it before. The MDA Group has been operating since 1989, and we started by bringing educational tours to New Zealand. And uh, I suppose... Our educational tours, we're focused on delivering adventure itineraries. So taking people out, rafting, mountain biking, kayaking, rock climbing, all that sort of jazz, hiking, even up into the snow for snow tours. And that's we, we're still involved in that adventure sports side of it. But the difference between us and other operators is that, or the rather the two differences were that we were delivering everything in-house. So the guide who was picking you up from the airport was also the guide that was taking you out mountain biking and then also your guide on the raft as well mm-hmm. so they're very multi-talented multi-skilled guides but the, the real crux of that difference was that we were delivering these in a uniquely Māori way so we culture sort of became the center point for almost every mm-hmm. itinerary we were delivering almost every tour was going on to a marae using the marae as our, our, our place to stay to really show people to show our visitors this is how Māori live today Mm -hmm. and that's 
sort of the 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 ethos that we've carried on as far as developing itineraries and uh, most of our cultural work today sits in that uh, luxury market in that premium space delivering for um, premium clients uh, from all over the world and the thing is with cultural tourism in particular with Māori tourism we have a lot of really big operators that most people know from, mm-hmm. from around the country right like most people know the tipuias and the the Waitangi treaty grounds and the tamaki tours all, all those sort of entities they're big organizations and they've they do a really good job of what they have set out to deliver, which is an insight, a really quick insight into how Māori used to live. And we didn't want to occupy that space because there mm-hmm. are people doing it really well. My mm-hmm. own office is based at Tapuia now. And, and these guys, especially with the New Zealand Māori Arts and Crafts Institute right there, they really give a great insight into how Māori used to live, especially for those who are time-limited. But that's not something that we wanted to delve into. We really wanted to make sure that we were showing people how Māori live today and giving them that one-on-one time so that people can delve into the things that they're really interested in. And so our cultural experiences are tailored every time we take them out. Mm-hmm. So they're all, you won't find an off-the-shelf Māori cultural product in our repertoire. Mm-hmm. They're not something that we package up because, one, you go onto a marae a very spiritual experience and being completely Mm -hmm. honest not everyone wants to delve that far into our culture Mm -hmm. it's a big thing to get into that spirituality of it and for some people that's not a comfortable place to be but if we go onto the marae we have to incorporate that because that's our custom that's our practice Mm -hmm. so like I say it's customized and tailored for everyone that comes in and some people have a real interest in art some people have a real interest in history some people have an interest in war they have an interest in all sorts of different things and so when we are talking to our agents about their clients we're really sort of trying to to delve down to a deep level to find out what it is that interests um, our guests coming on so that we can put the right people on that trip, on that tour, to give them the, the right experience, that, that unique cultural experience that they'll really struggle to find anywhere else. You know? And that's what we do. I, I realise that's really broad, but it kind of has to be because it changes every time. You won't find a marae or a, a cultural tour from us that is just a, a rubber stamp McDonald's uh, burger line sort of type of product it, it, it can't be that my butt kicked by my dad and the rest of our tribe if, if we tried to commercialize our our but it's I think about when I travel around the world mm-hmm. and I've been incredibly fortunate enough to and, and lucky enough to to stay in some pretty nice places luxury mm-hmm. resorts and um, beautiful hotels and all that sort of jazz and they've been really cool but my the things I remember the most are those times that I spend with real locals. Mm-hmm. I think about the time I went to Borneo, for instance, and mm-hmm. we ended up just talking to this random kid. He's like, come for a ride on my boat. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> and so we're just riding on this boat, checking out snakes. I'm terrified of snakes. Checking out snakes <laughs> and monkeys and all that sort of jazz. I'm like, this is great. He ended up taking us to his house and introduced us to his parents. They made us some food. Mm. It was just cool. And that's a memory that, that will last forever with me. You know, yeah, those are the, what we try to replicate with what we do. Just really get to that next level of, mm. of relationship building. And that's the essence of our our cultural tours, and I say that with inverted 
speech marks. But that's really interesting because you talk about these cultural tours being very different. And what's going to intrigue me next is how do you recruit the staff and train them? And, and what development process do you have in place to make sure that it is truly unique and really focuses on that Māori tourism visitor expectation? I love that. So how, how do you recruit staff? The co-owner of the business is my brother. Our events <laughs> manager is my cousin. Our interim <laughs> operations manager for Mountain Bike Latour is my sister-in-law. The, our accounts manager is uh, a girl that I married. I mean that because I was a celebrant, so I, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> right, marry okay. with right, right, right. partners or anything <laughs> like that, but she lived with my brother for a little bit, family, friends, and yeah, like I say, so recruitment is... Organic. Yeah, it's very organic. And I, I remember when I first bought into this business, because I used to have business partners, Nick and Kimmy Chater were the old owners of MDA Experiences. And every time we looked at how to, to grow the company, the reason for growing the company was to try and bring someone else we liked into our fold. So every time we, we saw, or we had someone around the table that, that we liked and that was willing to jump on board with us full time, we would then start to take the company off in the direction of that person yeah. to try and make that full-time position for them. So <laughs> the company was built on trying to make, to, trying to bring our friends and family closer to us so that they mm. would become uh, a bigger part of our lives. And honestly, that's how we've continued to grow even to this day. Now we, we're a little bit bigger than we were back then. So when I bought uh, my brother and I bought out the last of the shares in the group there were three staff and we're up and over 60 staff on our payroll at the moment so it, it has grown a bit but the ethos hasn't changed a heck of a lot and it's probably only in the last year as you know as we as finding staff in tourism and hospitalities could become much harder and I know that a lot of my mm. friends out there in the industry would say the same thing that we've had to look at other ways of recruiting what we have managed to do is still make those people only one step removed <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I might not know them but might be Ari our event manager's cousin who's coming in right so yeah. we, 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 we are still managing to keep that idea the same but it's had to change a little bit as far as the experiences go well I suppose I was I was handed a company that had a lot of really talented people around it uh, when we bought it who came in to do contract pieces here and there. And so when we've looked at developing, whether it be tailor-made tours or these um, educational tours for these schools, we've really recognised, and it's a very classic Māori ideal, that it's about the people. And what's the biggest thing in the world it's the people the people the people that that doesn't just go uh one way about how do we look after our visitors that comes back to how do we make an amazing environment for our own people around our lives and that includes our staff and how do we best utilize them and achieve the things that they want to achieve and we just are fortunate enough to have people around the table who just love to host recognize where their strengths are so now if I think about Roy Toya who's someone who w went through the Māori Arts and Crafts Institute here at Tapuya way back in the 1980s he's come full circle and he does uh, a bunch of our art work with our clients so if we've got okay. someone who's particularly interested in Māori art specifically car wood carving mm -hmm. then he's the person that would bring through for that or if you've got someone who's interested in Pounamu and, and, and jade carving or bone carving then my cousin Lewis Gardner he's made a couple of pieces personally but he's also the guy that we've used to make pieces for people like Prince Harry and, and, and Megan and for families from uh, royal families from the Middle East 
So mm-hmm. we have some amazing people around us. And it's something that I was taught from a really young age um, when, when my coach, actually, uh, my water polo coach, Hank Rapink, he said, always surround yourself with positive people. I mean, you've got the right people around you. You can move mountains, you know, it makes a difference mm-hmm. in your life. And so I've done that. <laughs> I took that <laughs> advice and I rolled with it. You know, if I look at the office, I've got um, 14 people down there that are much smarter than me. And it's a great way to be. If I look out in the field, I've got pro mountain bikers who do mountain bike tours who just happen to be good with people. So that that's surrounding myself with the right people also jumps over to that cultural element as well of the business. And yeah, I definitely have some very talented people in around the MDA group. Brilliant. And Tuck, what are your hopes for the future of our industry with regards to Māori tourism products and services? Honestly, there are... And I, I don't say this to, to, to Kassas at all. I say it quite meaningfully, having travelled around New Zealand a bit over the last year and a half, mm-hmm. in particular seeing Māori operators, um, yep. because obviously cultural tourism is a hard thing to sell domestically. It's a funny old thing about New Zealanders and Māori culture. And so this side of the industry is really struggling for the most part. There are very small pockets of people who are doing all right, but yep. for the most part, it's pretty tough for, for cultural and specifically Māori tourism in New Zealand right now. Yep. If I think about what I want to get out of this, I want people to think of cultural tourism as more than just getting out in the grass skirt and poking our tongues out at people. If I look at those big tourism platforms, I'm not going to name any big organisations that operated uh, operate you know, uh, under... Uh, government um, funding or anything like that but whenever Māori Language Week comes up that's what you see you see pictures of painted on tattoos and grass skirts flinging about and like I said there is a time and place for that and it absolutely is a representation of a lifestyle that we used to have but I wear all birds on my feet man you know (laughs) (laughs) I wear mons this this is modern Māori and people really understanding what cultural tourism can be what it Mm. is to me because cultural tourism to me is operating with our Māori values which so many of us do especially in tourism and hospitality Mm. a lot of us operate with those classic Māori value sets of looking after the people next to us you know manaki tanga whanaunga tanga creating relationships I I don't know any tourism company that that isn't at the forefront of their of their ideals and kaitiaki tanga a lot of us tourism operators really pride ourselves on being advocates for the environment and for environmental change and our standards and those value sets done in a Māori way you know so really involving the tile, the living world, that, that's cultural tourism. So a raft trip down the the Orkiri River or the Kaituna River with a kaitiaki or rotorua rafting, that's a cultural journey. They started with a karakia. They uh, acknowledge the local Ngāti Hinerangi, Ngāti Pikiao people. That's a cultural tour. Cultural mm-hmm. tours don't have to be about the, the, the stereotype that we have in our minds. There's much more to cultural tourism than, than just that. And so... I can get anything across to people is that it doesn't have to be about the performing arts and mm. like I say that grass skirt wearing cultural tourism is much much more than that and can mean much much more as well and can be of value to Kiwis a yes. lot more as well. <laughs> I think it's something because I mean obviously I'm Australian and we have the same thing over there we don't 
celebrate the Aboriginal culture much. But I think for me, travelling overseas and engaging with some European history and different cultures and different languages, you come home and actually find yourself wanting to know more about your history and the country that you live in. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. It would be great to see Kiwis engaging on a much more meaningful, authentic layer and wanting to, yeah, take part in the Māori tourism products. So, Well, Doc, at the moment, are running for staff of, of the Department of Conservation. They run these programs, which are intense, week-long stays on the marae. And not many people will take a week out of their lives to go and understand other people's cultures. Some of us do. Some of us will go halfway around the world and do a week-long yoga camp. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you, seeing it firsthand, the change it makes in the way people view Dao Māori, the Māori world, and Mm -hmm. the amount of respect it generates for why things are done the way they are in, mm. in, in that Māori space as well. Yeah. And uh, those sort of programs would just be amazing to get over the line. Like I'm an advocate for making Māori history and at least a portion of the Māori language compulsory in the schools because it just the more educated people are, the better we'll be. And yeah. I look at religion in the same way. I may be agnostic, but I like to learn as much as I can about all sorts of faiths because I find that the more I understand about them, the more I understand people, why people do what they do. What they do. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I think the more that we do this and the more it is integrated in our schools and Montereo and so on and so forth, the more confident the rest of society will start feeling about using it and bringing it. Michelle and I talk about trying to use it on this show all the time. And sometimes we get stuck on those words and, but we want to give it a go. So. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Tuck, thanks so much for joining us once again this week. And we have a special prize that you've donated for our listeners of a two full suspension, full day bike hires to give away. So listeners, we want to hear from you where you're going to ride these bikes in Rotorua if you win. Mm -hmm. So head to our Instagram page, destinate underscore NZ to enter. And Tuck, we wish you and the team all the very best for your two awards at the awards final later this month. Yeah. Thank you very much. Wonderful to chat to you guys as well. Thank you. Cheers, Tuck. Have a good day.